You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Well, good morning. How are we? Good, 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 good. Uh, I love Michael Green. He is a wonderful human being. If you haven't had the pleasure of meeting Michael Green yet, you need to meet Michael Green. Uh, Data is his life, uh, and he actually taught me how to appropriately or rightly say the word data. It's not data, it's data, and I know that now because of my friendship with Michael Green. Uh, But he he really is a wonderful guy, and his uh, story of faith in Jesus and how he uh, rationalizes his his faith is absolutely wonderful. So I hope you were blessed by a little bit of his story that he was sharing. If you're a guest with us, my name is Michael Bailey. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown Fellowship, and I'm excited to be with you guys as always as we continue our journey uh, in this series that we're calling Why I'm a Christian. We're just going to jump right in today. Uh, We're going to go to Mark chapter 9. So if you want to grab a Bible and turn there, that would be absolutely fantastic. We'll be in Mark chapter 9 and we're going to pick up in verse 21 and we'll read to about verse 25. If you don't have a Bible at all, just know there's some located underneath your seats. We would love for you to take that home with you as our gift to you. But where we pick up today, this is actually one of my favorite events in Jesus's life and ministry. In Mark 9, we pick up with this story of a father whose child has been stricken with an unclean spirit that is causing all kinds of mental and physical harm to his son. And this father knows that if anyone can help him, if anyone can help his family, it's Jesus and Jesus's people. So what he does is he brings the child to Jesus's disciples to be freed from this unclean spirit and to receive healing. But It doesn't go as he thought it was going to go. It doesn't go as expected, uh, as he or the disciples, for that matter, expected. Uh, For some reason, the disciples can't seem to cast this spirit out. And so this whole thing begins to cause a bit of a scene. And then Jesus pulls up, and that's what we're going to pick up in verse 21. This is what it says. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I would love for us for a moment just to imagine that we are this father. Like, imagine that you are in this scenario, that you are this father who has brought this child to Jesus' disciples. Like, what, what what would have you been thinking in these moments? I know I, at least, would be thinking something along the lines of, I really thought this was supposed to go differently. When I brought him to you, I thought your disciples were supposed to be the ones who could cast this thing out. I thought that you were able to do this. I trusted you, and this did not go according to plan. Maybe maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I'm wrong about you. Maybe I'm wrong about you and your people. I don't know what I think. I I know for me, at least, I would be pretty full of doubt in this moment. And apparently, this father was too. Let's keep moving. Verse 23. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Jesus is all like, what do you mean, if I can, if you can? What do you mean, believe? 
And I love the honesty of the man's response here. He says, I do believe, but I don't believe as strongly as I probably need to believe. Will you help my unbelief? Help me. And Jesus winds up healing the boy. And the reason that I love this passage so, so much, it's because I believe the father here really encapsulates a lot of my personal experience and what I feel like is the Christian experience as a whole. And what I mean is, is that we are something of a mixed bag, right, when it comes to our faith and our trust in Jesus. We're a mixed bag of belief and disbelief, right? A mixed bag of, Jesus, I trust you and I believe you, but Jesus, I also struggle to trust you and believe in you. A mixed bag of faith and doubt, And so for the past three weeks, what we've been doing is we've been looking at some of the rationale behind Christian belief, Uh, that though sometimes it can feel crazy to be a Christian, that it's actually not all that crazy to be a Christian. But today what I want to do is I want to take a little bit of a different track. I want to approach this thing a little bit differently. Instead of talking about reasons why we can be confident about what we believe, I want us to talk about doubt and how we as followers of Jesus or believers in Jesus can wisely handle our doubt. Now, here's why I want to bring this up, because I would submit to you that I think to live in the 21st century in the United States of America, even here in a geographical and cultural location often referred to as the Bible Belt, I would submit that to live here in order to make it as a Christian, we're going to have to know how to handle our doubt, because doubt is simply the water we swim in, right? Here's what I mean. At the very heart of our collective national story, which I know that's painting with a really, really broad brush, so please grant me just a little bit of leeway on this, but at the very heart of the American story lies this ideology, this value, this way of thinking of progress and deconstruction, to tear down what is unhelpful or unhealthy, such as overreaching and unfair governments like the British crown in the 18th century, to tear it down in hope of creating a better future. This is what our country was founded on. And so sort of built into our collective consciousness is this value to not just accept the status quo, to not just accept things as they are, but to question them and to tear them down if necessary to try to build something better for the future, to approach what is with a who says it has to be that way mentality? Who says it has to be like this? And truth be told, this has made, I mean, there have been some really, really wonderful, wonderful things that have come from this mentality in America. Things that that I, for one, am really grateful to God for here. Things like the freedom of religion, right? Like, we have the freedom. Like, we don't have governmental authority trying to force religious adherence down our throats. That is a wonderful and beautiful thing. Things like the civil rights movement and gender equality. And look, I know we still have a long, long, long long, long way to go in those areas. But it's this ethos that has made the ground that we've gained here actually possible. There are things that have absolutely needed to be deconstructed and torn down so that we could build up towards uh, something stronger and more in line with the biblical vision for human flourishing. We needed those things. However, our cultural current also brings along with it some inherent difficulties, right? Like, latent within our natural dispositions uh, is this position towards distrust and skepticism, right? 
Like, especially towards figures of authority, whether they be political or social or religious or ideological. And it often brings with it more of a desire to tear down than actually a desire to build back up. So along with great progress in some areas, we've simultaneously seen things like the rise of postmodernism, which holds a general suspicion for any absolute truth claim. And though most academics and philosophers have abandoned this way of thinking, it's still massively popular in the wider culture that we live in. And then there's the rising polarization that we see in our political and social discourse, especially at this time of year, right, when we're entering into an election cycle. Everybody's pointing their fingers at those on the opposite side of the aisle saying that they are the worst thing for humanity since the bubonic plague, right? Like we can't go anywhere without somebody saying, you should never trust a word that comes out of so-and-so's mouth depending on what side of the line they fall on. And we just have a general suspicion that most public figures have some sort of scandal somewhere in their closet. We have a distrust for institutions, especially big corporations that we believe are just trying to manipulate us for their own bottom line. This is just the water we swim in. It's how we think about life here in America. And so by and large, attitudes of doubt and skepticism dominate our brainwaves. And at the end of the day, honestly, I don't think any of that is necessarily wrong or immoral, but I do think it puts us in a very unique cultural moment that we are set up to be skeptical and cynical and have doubt towards everything, everything including God. And so if we're going to faithfully follow Jesus here, we're going to need to know how to handle these things. We're going to need to know how to handle doubt because it's going to come at us, whether we are the ones who are personally struggling with it or whether we just care about a friend, a neighbor, or a coworker who does. As followers of Jesus, we're going to need to know what to do with doubt and disbelief and skepticism. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to help us in that. I want to help us learn to understand what doubt is and how we as as followers of Jesus can handle it well and wisely. And so here's what I've got for us. I've got, I want to show you three things about the nature of doubt and how we as believers handle doubt in a wise way. So sound good? That's what we're going to do with the rest of our time. Everybody with me? Good. Cool. All right. Here's the first thing. First thing that we need to know about doubt is that at its core, doubt is simply disguised belief. At its core, doubt is simply disguised belief. Yeah, excuse me. When When we think about doubt or skepticism, we tend to put it on a spectrum, right? With faith at one end and rationality at the other. And doubt or skepticism generally are, we think, fall on the rational end of that spectrum. But that's actually not how it works. So uh, there's an author, a guy by the name of Michael Polyani. Uh, he's a Hungarian-British scholar uh, described as a polymath, which, just to be honest, I didn't know what that was when I first read it, but I did a little bit of digging. And basically, it means he's a know-it-all, except the kind of know-it-all that you like, all right? Uh, A polymath is someone who uh, has an expertise in a wide array of fields, and he draws on that expertise basically to solve really specific but very complex problems. But all that being said, he wrote a philosophical work called Personal Knowledge with a chapter entitled The Critique of Doubt. And here's what he argued in this chapter. He said, skeptical doubt always contains an element of belief. Doubt and belief are ultimately equivalent. The doubting of an explicit statement denies one belief in favor of other beliefs which are not doubted for the time being. Essentially, what he's arguing here is he's saying that doubt and belief are really just two sides of the exact same coin. Whenever you doubt one belief, you are alternatively choosing to believe, or rather to not doubt, other beliefs. 
Another way of saying it is that all doubts, no matter how skeptical or cynical they might actually seem, are really just alternate beliefs. So for example, if you have a doubt that says, if you have a doubt that says, I don't think that my team can win the championship this year, what that means is that you conversely believe that there are better teams out there than your team who are going to win. If you have a doubt that says, I don't think it's possible that the world is flat, that means you conversely believe that I have enough information out there to prove that the earth is some other shape, namely round, and you would be right, right? And the same principle applies to our beliefs, thoughts, and doubts about God. So for example, we can't say that I don't think anyone can know enough to be certain about God without at the same time believing that I have enough knowledge about the nature of religious knowledge to be certain about that claim. Now, none of that is necessarily all that profound or insightful until we realize that the problem is that if both are beliefs, we tend to not scrutinize them all that equally. We tend to doubt our religious or faith-seeming beliefs, but never actually doubt our doubts. To never ask any questions about our doubts, to never say, okay, if I doubt that blank is true, this means that I believe blank. Now, now does that hold up? Is that reasonable based on what I know? And this is partly what Jesus is exposing to the Father in Mark 9 when he says, if I can, essentially, do you see what you're actually believing right now? Do you see what you're actually saying? Does that, does that line up with what you know to be true? That anything is possible for those who believe? He points out to the Father this misguided belief behind his doubt. So I'll give you another example to help you see this in our context. There is a, uh, a, British, actor, uh, a British actor named Stephen Fry. You may be familiar with him. He's a very, very entertaining, very entertaining human being, uh, and also a very, very popular atheist. And in defense of his atheism, he once famously said that atheism is not just about not believing there is a God, but on the assumption that if there is one, what kind of God is he? And he says it's perfectly apparent. He's monstrous, utterly monstrous. And he goes on to cite the existence of suffering and evil as these Loctite arguments that God doesn't exist. And if by chance he did exist, you shouldn't worry about him or whether or not you're going to go to heaven when you die because he obviously is not good or worthy to be worshipped and he's not the type of God you would want to spend an eternity with anyway. What he's expressing here is a very, very powerful doubt. And to be fair, there, there is a lot there that is worthy to be considered and should not be easily dismissed, but it's also a doubt that is full of hidden belief. So if we were to apply a little bit of scrutiny to it, we'd find that it's not as Loctite as it first appears. We'd realize that the belief behind the doubt is if there is an all-knowing sovereign God whom I can hold accountable for suffering, that this God couldn't possibly, uh, couldn't possibly have reasons to allow it that I can't see. And furthermore, I believe I actually can see and know enough to hold this God accountable for what's going on. Well, now, wait a minute. Does that actually hold up? No. No, it doesn't. Of course, an all-knowing and sovereign God could have justifiable reasons that I don't understand. And of course, I don't see everything from my limited human perspective. 
And so while it is a compelling argument, and there, is something, there are some things to be looked at there, it's not really a reason to believe that God doesn't exist. But then you could also take it another layer down. Not only does it believe that I have enough knowledge to judge this God, but it also believes that God has never done anything to communicate that he is good or loving, and that he's never done anything to respond or fix evil and suffering in the world. But according to the Christian tradition, that doesn't hold up either. In fact, it's at the very heart of what Christians believe, that God entered the world through Jesus to reverse the curse of sin, including all the evil and suffering that sin has brought along with it. And of course, none of that, again, is to say that there isn't something genuinely to look at or wrestle with when it comes to the problems of pain and suffering in our world. There certainly is. But it is to show that every doubt, no matter how powerful it may seem, is actually a belief with problems that deserve scrutiny of its own. And so one way that we can wisely handle our doubt is simply to doubt it. Simply to doubt it. We ought to doubt our doubts. To bring the exact same scrutiny that our doubt brings to our faith in Jesus, to our doubts themselves. To identify what are the alternative beliefs that I am believing when I doubt. And see whether or not that holds up to what I know to be true and what the scriptures actually say about Jesus. If you doubt God's love for you, that means you likely believe that God hasn't done anything to show you that he loves you. Does that hold up? Do you have enough evidence to really make that claim? If you doubt God's existence, you believe you've seen enough evidence to make that conclusion. Is that true? Is there evidence that might disagree with you? Now, perhaps you might come to the same conclusion, but we shouldn't trust our doubts implicitly. Which brings us to number two. The reality is, is that many if not most of our doubts are socially formed. Many, if not most of our doubts, are socially formed. Here's what I mean. In every culture, no matter what that culture is or where that culture is, including our own, there are certain things that are normalized and socialized into us, unbeknownst to us. Things that we pick up and we are completely unaware that we have picked them up. So, for example, the the American drive that I mentioned earlier is a great example of this. The American drive for progress and autonomy is a great example. But I'll give you another that's a little bit more down to earth. So, uh, most of you know that our family of churches is preparing to plant a new church in Charlotte uh, at the end of this year. And so, a while back, a couple of our pastors and the church planner, a guy named Tim, whom most of you have met before, uh, they actually went up to Charlotte to on a visit to pray and just asked God for a vision for the church to be planted there. And while they were there, they went to a particularly hip part of town. Uh, it's a part of town called Noda, which is basically Charlotte's art district. Uh, they say, they call it the city's epicenter for inspiration on their travel page or whatever. Uh, so really, it's, a, it's this real quirky and self-expressive side of town that you can tell highly values things like self-expression and individual freedom. It's not all that unlike Five Points or State Street in our area. And while they were there, they realized, and perhaps you've had this experience too, that while this community very obviously valued these ideals, every single person they saw was dressed the exact same way. Same skinny jeans, same scarves, same outrageously large hats that serve no functional purpose. Every single person was dressed the same way. And it began to beg this question in them of, why does everybody's self-expression look the exact same way? Why, why are all of us individually doing the exact same thing? In the pursuit of being authentic, all they really did was throw off one set of social norms to step into another. And look, 
Hipsters are easy to pick on, all right? But we all do it. We all do it. Each and every one of us do it. I mean, think about it this way. I'll pick on myself for a moment. Uh, Do you think that I drive a truck and enjoy sitting in a tree with a gun because it is the truest expression of my inner self? Really? No. I do enjoy those things. I really enjoy those things. But I enjoy those things because I learn to enjoy them by being around other people who also enjoy them. I am a product of the people that I am around. And that doesn't mean I don't enjoy them. It just means that I am, a be- I am the product of a bevy of influences. And this happens on much, much deeper levels, too. I read a fascinating article recently uh, that referenced some research about the power of social networks. This will blow your mind. The researchers found that if a friend of yours becomes obese, you yourself are 45% more likely than chance to gain weight over the next two to four years. More surprisingly, though, is they found if a friend of your friend becomes obese, your your likelihood of gaining weight increases by about 20%, even if you don't know that friend of a friend. That is insane, right? Like, that's utterly ridiculous. But they said the same principle held true for things like smoking and general rates of happiness as well. And the point they were making was that you and I are being socialized and influenced by people we have never met in ways that are almost impossible for us to see. It's just, it's just the water we swim in. And this is happening with our beliefs and our doubts as well. So pastor and author Timothy Keller, who we quote a lot around here, he explains it like this. He said, to move from religion to secularism, is not so much a loss of faith as it is a shift into a new set of beliefs and into a new community of faith, one that draws the line between orthodoxy and heresy in different places. His point is is that when we shift away from religious faith to non-religious faith, we generally aren't moving from a faith community into personal enlightenment or however you want to talk about it, but it's really just moving from one faith community into another. Though we like to think of ourselves as mainly the product of our own decisions and our own choices and our own thoughts and desires, such is not really the case. We are all the product of the people and the environment around us. And sometimes this is really overt, and we can see it really clearly, like the hipsters in Noda. Many who will proudly declare on social media or whatever that this is who I am and this is what I believe and I don't care what others think. I only care about what I think. But we quickly see all that's happened is they've traded one community of cheerleaders for another community of cheerleaders. But sometimes it's just more subtle for us, right? The dominant doubts of our culture just sort of surround us from everything that we see and hear and read. And it's not that we've traded one set of cheerleaders for another or one community for another, but our former belief just doesn't feel right anymore. We just have this undergirding sense of, oh, this feels off. In Romans 1, the text we looked at to start the series four weeks ago, Paul starts his argument about the existence of God with the words, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And this kind of goes without saying, but the only reason for Paul to mention that he isn't ashamed about the gospel is if there is some pressure on him or his audience to actually feel shame for the gospel. For Paul's audience in Rome, it was likely persecution in the form of harassment and beatings and imprisonment, possibly death. And while we might not have to expect the same in our cultural moment, there's still a tension that exists. Trusting and following Jesus might get you looked at funny or ostracized in some social circles. You might get called intolerant or accused of being on the wrong side of history. And, And if you pay careful attention, 
you'll find that many of our doubts tend to just move in the same direction as the beliefs presented to us from our social media and our television and whatever else around us. Things like you don't have to believe in God to be a good person or to live a full life. That if you're not hurting anyone, you should be free to do what you want when you want. And anything or anyone, including a God that would restrict you, isn't really on your side. That's just oppression. Or things like a judging God would be an unloving God. God can't be that way. Almost everyone in our culture who walks away from Jesus eventually ends up coming to the same conclusions about these things. And whether we know it or not, we end up being just like the hipster from Noda, all wearing the same outrageous hat of doubt, thinking we've become enlightened. When the truth is, is that we just fail to see that our culture and our environment actually play a role in what we think and believe. So recently I read a story of a guy who became a Christian from an atheistic background. And in his story, he was recounting just some of his journey from skepticism to faith in Jesus. And this is actually one of the things that he brought up. He said that one of his biggest doubts about Christianity and belief in God in general was this view that if God existed, it was unfair of him to cast judgment on humans. But he said that all of that changed when he found himself with a Chinese friend who also didn't believe in God, but who said that if there was a God, God certainly would have the right to, excuse me, would certainly have the right to judge people as he saw fit. And he said it just popped a circuit in his brain. That someone who didn't believe in God could actually think very differently and hold God to a different standard than he was holding him to. He began to realize that his doubt about judgment and hell was actually based on a white, Western, democratic, individualistic mindset that most other people in the world just simply didn't share. And in his words, not mine, he said, to insist that the universe run like a Western democracy was actually a very ethnocentric point of view. And while this wasn't the final nail in the coffin for him coming to faith, he said what it did do was help him realize that a lot of his issues with God we're actually more a product of his environment than anything actually within himself. And the truth is, is that for many of us, the exact same thing is true too. That many of our struggles and wrestles with God are not the product of something within ourselves. They're a product of the influences and the environment around us. And so when it comes to our doubts and how we handle them wisely, honestly, the truth is, is we need to be in the habit of what the scriptures call renewing our minds. That as believers, one of the wisest ways we can handle our doubts is to renew our minds. This is what Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We need to recognize that there is a pressure on you to live, think, and believe in certain ways. The ways that the rest of the world lives, thinks, and believes. And to counteract that by intentionally setting our minds on the things of God. Through his word, through his people, and through his spirit. This is where it comes back to the thing that we say all the time. That you're probably tired of hearing us say by this point. But it's the things you do, do things to you. We always come back to this. The things you do, do things to you. I had a buddy not long ago who came up to me, and he was just like, yeah, man, we were getting lunch. He said, yeah, man, I, I'm just not a Christian anymore. And I asked him, man, so what, what brought you there? Like, how did, how did you get to this point? And he said, well, I've just been reading a lot of non-Christian authors, and I find their arguments really, really compelling. And so I asked, well, yeah, I mean, I, that makes sense. I mean, there are a lot of really compelling arguments out there, but have you read any Christian thinkers on both sides so you could see both sides of the argument? And he just looked at me and said, no. 
And so I said, well, tell me what exactly you expected to happen. What did, what did you think was going to be the outcome of all of this if all you're surrounding yourself self with is doubting voices? Because the truth is, is if, you, if you only surround yourself with doubting or deconstructing voices, you are going to become a doubting and deconstructing person. That's simply what's going to happen. Your doubts are going to begin to feel like the only thing that makes sense. If, hypothetically, all I do is listen to podcast after podcast of ex-Christians airing out their issues with Christianity, assuming that it's not going to have any impact on me, and at the same time avoiding community and being with God through the Bible and prayer, look, that stuff is going to shape you. The things you do, the habits you form, the stuff you watch, the stuff you read, and the voices you surround yourself with, they will have an impact on you. And I'm not saying that you should never do anything uh, or listen to anything that challenges your faith. Like, that would be silly. Of course, there's a time and place for us to do that. But I am saying that we shouldn't be so naive as to think that those things aren't going to have an impact on our soul if they are the only thing that we intake. It's going to shape you. Your habits reinforce your beliefs. And the sad truth of the matter is, in my experience, people who've gone through intense doubting to the point of deciding not to follow Jesus anymore had actually decided to not follow Jesus long before their doubts ever took over. 99.9% .9 of the time, they had already given up cultivating their soul for, long, for prolonged seasons. It didn't happen overnight. There was already a slow regression of no longer spending time with God through, word, through his word and prayer. There was already a pulling back from Christian community and gatherings because I'm too tired or the kids had a long weekend or work's just been really demanding lately. And the truth is, is you don't have to do anything intentional for this to happen, right? Doubt and deconstruction are just what our culture does. I joked with one of our members before this series saying, I wanted the subtitle to be, subtitle this to be, Why I'm a Christian, Helping You Deal With Your Facebook Feed. Because it's just everywhere. Every time we get online, we see it. Because doubt is all over the place. You don't have to discipline doubt, okay? You don't have to discipline your doubt. What we have to discipline is another voice in another direction, what we have to be intentional about is hearing counter voices to the doubts that flood our minds. Which brings me to the third and final thing for us. That our doubts, they're not actually neutral. Doubt is not actually a neutral thing. Later in Romans 1, Paul gives us a massive insight to our doubt. He says in verse 18 that we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. He essentially says that as individuals, we, we aren't neutral. Though we like to think ourselves neutral, we aren't neutral. We aren't unbiased, and neither are the doubts that we struggle with. We are wired to be particularly tempted by doubts, especially doubts that seem to be giving us the freedom to define right and wrong for ourselves, to do what we want when we want it, and to give us a moral cover for things we know aren't quite right. So I heard this really heart-wrenching story the other day. I was near the end of World War II, uh, the first town with a concentration camp that was discovered by the Allied forces, uh, that was liberated by the Allied forces, rather, was a town called uh, Ordruf, Germany. And I probably butchered that because I don't speak German very well, but you get the picture. Uh, anyway, the Nazis uh, in this town had tried to get rid of any evidence of the camp, but the Allied soldiers got there before they could do this. And the American GIs witnessed hundreds of thousands of dead bodies just there. It was the first concentration camp any American had seen. 
A few hours later, General Patton arrived, and, and uh, as the story goes, he promptly vomited upon witnessing the scene. And the next day, Patton brought the mayor of Ordruff and his wife to see for themselves what they had to have known was happening right there in their midst. And he ordered the mayor and every able-bodied person in the town to dig graves for the massacred. And after they dug the graves and conducted a funeral for the deceased, Patton went and he actually found the mayor and his wife had hung themselves. They had committed suicide. And before their death, they left a note that read, We didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know. But we knew. And that is a pretty haunting picture that we could know but not know because we don't want to know. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here in Romans 1, that we aren't neutral to the claims of Christianity. We aren't neutral to what the scriptures say, that there's something in us that wants it not to be true. Sometimes we're overt with it. Sometimes it's more subtle. But there's something deep down in us that wants to be convinced that the claims of Christianity aren't real. You might remember Thomas Nagel, the American atheist philosopher that we quoted in week one, who said, In speaking of the fear of religion, I don't mean to refer to the entirely reasonable hostility towards certain established religions and religious institutions in virtue of their objectionable moral doctrines, social policies, and political influence. Nor am I referring to the association of many religious beliefs with superstition and the acceptance of evident empirical falsehoods. I'm talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. It's incredible honesty that I, cut, that I think cut right to the heart of much of our doubt. That there is this thing in us that simply does not want it to be true. Because we know that if it were true, it would mean some dramatic things for our lives and perhaps force us to deal with stuff that we are not comfortable dealing with. And none of that is to say that anyone who struggles with doubt is only fooling themselves or being dishonest about their hang-ups. No, that's, that's not the case at all. But it is simply to say that the idea that we are strictly neutral, logical creatures who can just look at the facts and come to purely logical conclusions is a fantasy. It's just fantasy. We are a mixed bag of rationality and bias, most often biased towards personal comfort and autonomy and control. Sometimes we're like the father in Mark 9, and our doubts are influenced by our pain, like things did not go the way we wanted them to. They did not go the way we thought they would or should, that God didn't do what we expected him to, and now seeds of doubt are within us. And whatever it may be for you, the point is, is that we are not disconnected and neutral. We all have skin in the game in one way or another. And all that means is that when it comes to doubt, it means that we've got to handle it with a little bit of self-awareness. That if we're going to be wise with our doubt, we got to know what we are bringing to the table with it. Recognizing that we aren't necessarily as trustworthy as we think we are. To be honest about our motivations and desires. To be honest about what might lay at the root of our disbelief. And so what should we do with it? Simply, we should take our doubts to Jesus. That's what we should do. We should take our doubts to Jesus. 
Because here's the deal. Doubt is not actually something that the believer needs to run away from, despite what you may think. Doubt is not necessarily something that a believer needs to run away from. Timothy Keller again says it well in his book, Reason for God. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide the grounds for your beliefs to skeptics, including yourself, that are plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive. I love that. His point is sometimes doubt is the very thing that you need. Sometimes doubt can be the very thing that God uses to strengthen and revitalize your faith, but only if we are honest enough to come to him with them. Like the father for his son to come to Jesus crying, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but not as strongly as I probably need to. Jesus, will you help me with this? I'm questioning all of this. My faith has been shaken. Will you step in here and bring me strength? Because here's the thing. God is big enough to handle your doubt. Your doubts do not scare him at all. I think one of the big reasons that people stop following Jesus when they have doubts is because they wrongly believe that they have to have everything figured out in their head before they can approach him. We believe that we've got to get this difficulty, whatever it is, straightened out in our minds first, and then we can come to Jesus when we've got it all taken care of. But the truth is, is that Jesus meets us where we are. Jesus meets you where you're at in the midst of your doubt. Like he met the boy's father where he was at in the midst of his doubt. And this, in fact, is the good news of the gospel, that it is God's grace that saves you and his grace that sustains you. That it is not your ability to figure it all out that keeps you good. That it's not your ability to reach some form of doubtless existence. Not even getting to the point where you can intellectually defend your faith in the face of the most rigorous of criticism. But grace, God's power and gift for you. Grace for any and all who would come to him, even those of us with an inward bent to not want it to be true like you and like me. Because at the end of the day, you are not saved by the strength of your faith. You are saved by the strength of the one that your faith is in. And so however weak or fragile your faith may feel to you, if your faith is in Jesus, it is in the strongest place possible. He can handle it if you would bring it to him. And so for us, you know, as we try to wisely handle these things together, Let's doubt our doubts. Let's be mindful of our influence and renew our minds in light of what is true, what God says in his word. And let's bring these things to Jesus because he cares for you and he can handle them. That's the type of people we want to be. Not a people who run from our doubts, but who embrace them at the feet of Jesus. Let me pray for you. God, I know uh, that doubt is, I mean, that doubt is a hard thing uh, to deal with. And it is the current that we swim in. Uh, I know for me, it feels like every time I log on to any 
any amount of social media or turn on the news or whatever it may be, like just all these overwhelming messages of it's foolishness to believe in you. It's foolishness to trust in you. Look at how bad things are. Look at this and this and how these things are, are issues. And I mean, you know, it can, be, it can be really overwhelming. And I know that if I feel that, I assume that a lot of us in the room feel that as well. And so God, I just wanna pray for your spirit's help uh, and strengthening there. Uh, God, that we, like the Father in Mark 9, would come to you uh, with our weak and fragile faith and ask you to strengthen us, to help us get at the root of what lies beneath our doubts, to help us to doubt our doubts well, but to trust you with them, knowing that while you may not always give us the answers, you will see us through. Um, And we just need your spirit for that because doubt isn't going anywhere, and we just got to know that as your people. Uh, that in this, in this space that we inhabit in our cultural moment, doubt is just gonna be, it's gonna be there. Uh, but God, I pray that you would help us to be a people who winsomely and wisely know how to handle it. Not only for our own sake, God, but for the sake of the people we're around, uh, for the sake of our friends and neighbors and coworkers that you love, who have doubts of their own, who need to see a people whose faith is re- rested in you who can see how you, how you handle our doubts and how you're the one who gives us confidence. So God, I just pray that, that you would birth that in us and help us to be that people. Uh, we are really grateful for your grace to us, uh, that it's uh, a confidence in you that saves us, not a confidence in ourselves, uh, that, you are where, that you are the rock on which we are built, not our own abilities to think well or uh, to have everything figured out, but it's your strength where, where we rest. And so, God, I pray that that would be true for us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy to us, and it's in your name that we pray.